Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm Rita McGrath, as you probably know if you're here. Uh, my guest this week is Carter Copeland, who is the president of Melius Research, an independent research firm, and an analyst, uh, a stock market analyst. So he makes a living sort of figuring out what companies are going to do well and which ones aren't going to do so well and why. Uh, he is the co-author of this terrific book called um, Lessons from the Titans, which is about some of my absolute favorite companies that many of you never will have heard of because they don't have like dot coms after their names. Um, but I think it's a terrific book and I hope to get into it. Um, just uh, some housekeeping for those of you that don't know, we do record these fireside chats and they go up um, in five to seven days on my YouTube channel. So if you didn't get to see it live, you can watch it afterwards or if you want to replay it, that's great. Um, because it's being recorded, don't say anything or type anything you do not want your publication of choice or your mother to find out about. <laughs> and, uh, without further ado, welcome Carter. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. I will uh, make sure to keep my mother proud. <laughs> I'm sure she would be. And I actually wanted to ask you about that, because uh, in the recent interview that you did, you talked about how you got interested in stocks and investing. And as I gather, pestering your mother had a big role to play in that. Yeah, I, um, I, I was fascinated by the stock market as a, as a child. I, I like to tell the story. I, I asked my mother to buy me the Wall Street Journal's Guide to Money and Investing when I was eight years old. And I think I read it cover to cover in three days or something like that. And, and I just, I found, I always found the markets fascinating. Um, and, you know, it's, these were the early days of, you know, CNBC. And I'll never forget as an analyst and the first time being on, on set on CNBC and saying, I used to watch this as a child. It's, you know, it's really come full circle. So um, I've always had a passion for the markets. I'm, I'm an economist by training, but um, you know, it's just, it's always something that has been, you know, of great interest to me. And, and it's been an amazing, you know, almost two decades working in the markets and, and it's, um, it, it's never lacks for excitement, I would say. Yeah. So, um, I mean, one of the things that really fascinates me about your career, and then I do want to get into the book a little bit is I hear a lot from the people I work with who tend to be C-suite people, board people, directors of innovation, directors of whatever. And they're like, oh, the market's fill in blank. The markets won't let us. They don't reward unpredictable results. We can't do this because they're expecting us to deliver on the quarter. And based on what I read in the book and based on what I know about you, that does not ring true with what you seem to be thinking. So I'd love it if you could spend a minute maybe looking at, you know, you look at companies and you look at them for what they're doing, right? But there's also the view of the future. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's, the world's not so binary, uh, I would say, you know, are, is short-term performance for a company important? Sure, it's, it, it provides a signal for progress, right? Just take any task you, you want to accomplish, whether it's in business or in, in life, uh, and ask yourself what the goal is and what are the intermediate steps along the way. Um, Short-term financial performance in, in many regards will provide the signals of, you know, where you're ultimately headed. Um, you know, so this idea that, oh, you know, the market is too short-term and, and we're, we're, we have no flexibility whatsoever. I, I think that's taking it to a logical extreme and, and saying, you know, it's, it's having this binary construct. I think in the book, there's, there's plenty of examples. And look, we, we come at this from, the industrial or what many people would call you know, term the old economy world. But, um, you know, these companies that we know so well at, at, at my firm, at Melius Research, um, you know, they were the original disruptors of the economy. These were companies that, you know, they invented amazing technologies. They put people on the moon, um, you know, and, you know, those, those goals are, I think, 
well understood by the market. And I, I think, you know, having an overly binary focus is, is one that misses the important context. And so we, we, we outline lots of companies in the book that, that become permission, they, they let the market understand what the value creation formula that they put forth is. Uh, and in time, there are many examples of, you know, companies that the market is willing to say, you know what, they're permissioned to invest. You know, they, they've said what they're going to do. They show us progress points along the way, and they tell us this is the vision and where they're going. And everything holistically, you know, organizes around that. Um, I think there are far too many examples out there to say that, you know, short-termism has completely ruled the day. Um, I think there are plenty of examples where, you know, companies don't show that progress. Um, and they, you know, they, they don't have a consistent direction. And they fall more and more victim to those pressures because people want to see, uh, investors want to see a steady hand, a strategic vision, consistent progress. Uh, and that, you know, the, those things are established with each incremental data point. And so I think that clearly the answer is somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, and I agree that the, you know, there, there is some measure of short-termism in the markets uh, today, but it hasn't completely taken over. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things I've been studying um, with a colleague is a, a metric we're calling uh, the imagination premium, um, which is essentially a measure that takes your cash flow and backward works into what that suggests the market believes you're delivering today in terms of operations, but also what your prospects for growth are. And we find exactly what, what you've just said, which is that um, if you tell, if you have a growth story and a growth plan and you tell it well, you're going to be rewarded by the investing community. And that's been a pretty consistent finding. Conversely, if you don't have a growth story or you are just lurching from quarter to quarter without that clarity of direction, then investors aren't so interested. At least that's what we've found. So before we dig into that a little bit, maybe, maybe just explain, because not all my audience is going to be all that sophisticated. What, what is it that you do? That yeah, analysts so do? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I ask myself that question. So um, look, the world of Wall Street analysts historically has been, uh, you know, a, a research franchises that divide the economy up into, you know, let's call it 60 different pieces if you wanted to get as granular as possible. But it really comes down to about you know, a dozen key sectors of the economy. So industrials and tech and uh, consumer stocks and energy and you know, consum uh, consumer staples, utilities. Also, you know, we, we basically divide the economy up uh, into individual verticals that analysts you know, sort of become experts in. Uh, and they write research and publish investment ideas to you know, large institutional money managers, uh, typically. Uh, and these research franchises have historically existed inside large investment banks, right? So it's, it's a synergistic model where uh, you, you generate investment ideas, the investment ideas are sold to institutional clients, the clients trade with an investment bank and the commissions generate a profit. Uh, additionally, there's an investment bank attached that you know, is doing traditional investment banking business uh, the specter of influence that a research department has may influence the quality of, of the business that uh, the investment bank brings in. And so it's all sort of synergistic. Um, in that world, you know, you get analysts like me who cover a specific sector of the economy. So my firm, which is an independent firm, and I'll get to that in a second, focuses on the industrial space. It's, it's increasingly morphing into more and more tech, but uh, we focus on the industrial area. And within that area, I cover, historically I've covered aerospace and defense companies, right? So, um, you know, there are, 
you know, a couple dozen, a few dozen analysts uh, out there uh, in some form or fashion covering aerospace and defense. And they're all paid experts who, you know, they, they, they build financial models, they reach conclusions about the investability or the value creation formula of these companies over many, many years. I think the longest tenured analyst in my space has been covering aerospace and defense companies for 50 years, you know, so he makes my, makes my two decades look like nothing. But nonetheless, uh, you learn a lot about one specific slice of the economy. And so um, that's what I've been doing for, for quite some time. Uh, we did it in uh, all, all of my partners did it as part of a, a larger investment bank for a number of years. Uh, and then a few years ago, four, almost four years ago at this point, we kind of set out on our own to create an independent research firm that basically does the same thing um, in, in many respects in terms of covering stocks, having you know, financial estimates of what companies can earn, uh, having targets of what stocks could be worth. But I would say part of the reason we, we went outside the investment banking model where there are conflicts of interest and obstacles to expanding your you know, sphere of analysis and whatnot, um, we, we wanted to go out and, and really try to create more value in the research process. And, and the book is, is precisely one of those examples about how we can share what we've learned over, you know, collectively 60, 70 years of experience as analysts. Product placement uh, opportunity. <laughs> yeah, in, um, in a series of stories, right? And so there's, there's a dozen or so, call it case studies in that book that are stories that we lived with some of the biggest companies in the world, you know, household names that you'll recognize like GE and Boeing and Honeywell and United Technologies. But then you know, amazing success stories within that you've probably never heard of. You know, most people don't know of Danaher or Transdime or Roper, or companies that create immense amounts of value. And so uh, as part of an investment bank, we would have never been allowed to write a book. But out on our own, as part of an independent you know, research firm, uh, we can share those insights. And so that was that was the real impetus for writing the book. And, and since writing it, you know, alongside writing it, I think we continue to evolve um, as analysts and researchers trying to determine where, you know, the next great moves in that sector of the economy, you know, will be and where, where lessons will be learned from other, other parts of the economy. Most notably, I would say in our world, it's, it's the, the techification, if you will, of, you know, the old economy. There are immense uh, examples uh, that we can cover, and I'm sure we will cover. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's what we do. You know, every day we, you know, we have to have a view on what companies earn, how they make money, what they're worth, where they're headed. Um, you know, we have opinions about the quality of their leadership. You, you name it. It's 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 a great job. It's a really really fun job. I, oh yeah. Well, in a way, that's kind of what I do too. Except what I try to do is sort of figure out um, how to help them get better. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you're more on the did they do that or not <laughs> kind of end. Well, of it's it's funny because you come at it from a very top down perspective as as an analyst, right? When you become a young analyst, it starts very granular at the bottom. How do, how do you build a financial model to calculate what you think a company can earn, right? And that gets to the the simple part of the job. It may not be simple, but it, it, it really is. It, it, it's just figuring out what a, what a company does and how it makes money. And then as you grow as an analyst, you begin to appreciate the relative differences in business mix and the quality of a business model and uh, differences in leadership quality and culture. And, and you know, it just kind of goes from there. And then, you know, by the time you got a good decade, decade and a half under your belt, it's it, it becomes more about understanding 
people and strategy and whatnot. And so it, it, it's fun when you're, you're, you, you first start out as an analyst because it's, you know, the stock market is sexy, if you will. Uh, but, but it becomes a lot more cerebral when you get, you know, a lot of experience in the development. Mm. Well, I have to say one of the, so the way I ran across the book, because I don't think we, we haven't known each other before this. Uh, so it was sent to me and I get a lot of books sent to me, which is lovely. And please keep sending them. Those of you that send me books, but you know, you have, you only have so many hours in the day. So you have to kind of judge which ones are worth your time or not. And uh, I thought, well, you know, before, before I just move on, let me at least look at what's in here. And there's the, the first two chapters really caught my eye because they were about GE. And this was written by one of your co-authors, these two chapters. It's interesting about the book too, because each of them sort of take a chapter or two and write it from their perspective. And so part General Electric, part one, the Jack Welsh years and the cash flow machine that created the largest company on earth. So that sounds like a real success story. And then chapter two, General Electric, part two, how a culture of arrogance led to the largest collapse in American history. And then the next chapter is Boeing, which is also a company I've been, and that, that's one you wrote. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, let's spend a minute on GE just because... Uh, you know, when I started teaching at Columbia, so this would have been 1993, um, I mean, you could not move for case studies about GE. You know, it was like uh, speed, you know, and, 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 and candor and, you know, having the heart of a startup inside this large machine and Jack Welsh, you know, the manager of the century, that kind of thing. Um, and today, you know, people are almost embarrassed. I don't know what happened to all those case studies, but they're clearly not in the curriculum anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, so I, look, um, the 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 Jack Welch story is an amazing one, right? I mean, there's there's there are a lot of fantastic examples of a great business bets being made, you know, in, in aerospace uh, in particular, uh, what that you know where they they took that business, a fantastic capital deployment. The RCA deal uh, in the '80s was one that you know I think at the time was was not popular, but proved to be just an, an unbelievable lesson in capital deployment. Uh, there were just uh, scores of examples of um, leadership, uh, communication, and it was a tough place to work. I mean, it, it was, it, this was long hours, uh, the type of culture that, that drove, uh, you know, divorces in many cases, and it, it was a tough place to work, but one that was uh, absolutely focused on, on success above all else. And when you, you know, the, Scott details in the chapter, right, <laughs> When, when the, the company was handed from Wells to, to ML, um, Jack's comment was to, you, you know, you should just blow it up, blow it up, start over. Uh, and ML didn't do that, right? And, and what I think you find are there are several examples in, in the second chapter and in the GE story under ML of precisely the opposite. Um, poor communication, a lack of straight talk, uh, poor capital deployment, um, you know, just, a, you know, in the analyst community, an amazing amount of pressure uh, placed on analysts to, you know, to have their numbers be a certain way or to say certain things and using the power and scale of an organization like GE, the GE you remember, uh, you know, to pressure, uh, you know, the views of analysts and what, and it just, it, there, there are countless examples of how it went wrong. And then when you, you keep that going with a number of, you know, uh, let's say, you know, it's, it, I don't want to call it a Ponzi scheme, but, you know, there's this, this idea of we're going to, everything's still on the up and up. And, and as it turns out, you know, they were fooling themselves. And we find in many cases, uh, a lot of these big industrial companies get in, in the most trouble when they fool themselves, mm -hmm. when they come to believe 
you know, what, what they're telling the boss. And, you know, that, that was, that was really what happened. And it was, it was very unfortunate for a lot of stakeholders. Oh yeah. Oh, very sad. Um, and, you know, that's something I, I actually read about in, in my most recent book, which is how easy it is for senior executives to get cut off from the information, whether deliberately or not, you know, cut off from the information they need in order to make really good decisions. So question yeah, in our a leader, chat. A leader, has to demand, a leader has to demand the straight talk. Right. I mean, I think the natural status quo is to allow that leader to elevate and, and, and to not want to upset them, right? And so some of the best leaders that we've encountered are the ones that demand that they get, you know, information, the right information, truthful information, um, as, as often as possible. Yeah. And because if you're not seeking that out, the natural, uh, you know, equilibrium is to get to a place that you don't want to be at. Well, it's more comfortable, you know, yep. well, who, easy. Wants, who wants to come home and face your teenage kids telling you what a jerk you are. Right. I mean, you know, it's like... everybody likes good news. <laughs> So um, one of my kind of heroes in, in this regard and someone that uh, who has written his own book um, called Winning Now, Winning Later, and he was yep. the CEO of Honeywell for years. And he, this is David Cody, who I'm talking about, and um, he just recently stepped down as, as the CEO of Honeywell. I mean, he's like the least likely paradigm for a CEO you could think of. I mean, he's got this New England accent you could cut with a knife. He's pretty down to earth guy. And uh, one of the things I thought was so interesting about him is he was always saying things like, um, you know, I don't have to have all the information when I walk into the meeting, but I really need to have all the information by the time I walk out. And things like asking the most junior person at the meeting, so, you know, what do you think of this? And they're, they're like looking at their boss and they're looking at the chain of command. He's like, no, no, I really want to know what you think of all we've been talking about. And that's rare. That's pretty rare. Yeah, very inclusive, uh, very honest, but very process driven. Um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, he's a fantastic example of someone who, who came in and uh, to your point, an unlikely uh, candidate, you know, uh, a, a, you know, a GE alum from, you know, the hard time, you know, the, the, the hard charging days of GE uh, to come in and really take hold of a company that was not well-respected and, you know, put in a, a culture of, of honest leadership and communication and process-driven management day in and day out. Um, and, and to stick with that consistently uh, and to not hide. And, and I mean, to, to think what he's turned Honeywell into, it's, it's an amazing success story. It is, it is. But I, I, I do think it echoes some of what you've said previously, which is this consistent plan and, being straightforward about here's where we're here's where it's working here's where it's not, and he also makes the point about um, holding you know holding your expenses steady or even pushing on expenses while growing your revenue, and that when that compounds over time, you know that's a pretty decent recipe for success. Oh, of course. I mean, the, this whole concept of compounding, and you can look at some of the success stories we highlight in the book. You know, the, the transdimes and the ropers of the world. There's this clear understanding of where we create value as an enterprise. Um, and what levers to pull to maximize that value creation, right? It's, it's investment in product, service, whatever it is, uh, to maximize what you bring in uh, and minimize, you know, constantly. I mean, Danaher's an example, you know, of, of you know, just lean on steroids. Um, they wouldn't call it lean; they they, they would refer to it as DBS. But um, the this maniacal understanding of where you create the most value and how you control the things you control um, in this case being cost to, you know, to, to the greatest extent possible. 
and then understanding that that capital can be redeployed back into the value creation formula again and again and again. And the most successful companies that we encountered, they do that over and over and over again. And to your first question, those are the companies that investors over time realize are the ones that, that have the right long-term formula and they don't care so much about short-term. There aren't pressures from analysts or activist investors or you know, other groups on companies who can demonstrate that, you know, that skill uh, because they, you know, they've demonstrated enough to believe in the long term and that and the power of that compounding over, you know, a large number of years, it's just, it just leads to so much stock price outperformance. It's just so compelling. So where do you come down on the whole stock buyback debate that, you know, there, there's some people who I think, you know, line it up as the root of all evils with everything capitalism. And then there are some folks who are like, no, it's just another great way to, you know, return cash. We don't really need to shareholders. Yeah, look, I mean, I think there are, I'm a big believer in balanced capital deployment strategies if the opportunities themselves are balanced, right? Let's face it, not every company has an investment <coughs> objective or an investment opportunity in a given period of time that is equal to the size of the cash they may generate from their core business. Um, so, you know, you can let capital build to a certain extent, but, you know, back to this idea of you know, compounding and an optimal capital structure, you know, to, to sit on large amounts of cash is, is not value creating. Um, and, you know, to not do so is not value destroying, right? I, I think that's a, a kind of a key component. Um, the reality is lots of stakeholder groups need different things. Um, you know, you will have some shareholders that want dividend income. You will have some for tax purposes that don't want dividend income. They, they you know, they would like it more efficiently delivered to them in the form of share repurchase. Um, there are companies that have ample investment opportunities to deploy that capital towards research and development expenditures or optimization efforts or whatnot, and they should do that. Um, and there are some that don't. And the question is, you know, what is what's the right amount of, of capital to deploy in that manner? The answer is some, it's not none. Um, and it doesn't have to be all. But it's an it's a case by case evaluation based on the opportunities that are presented to a to a given company, right? Um, and so, I, I think it's incredibly interesting for companies when you have this balanced approach. You know, I can show you any stock chart uh, over the course of a year, or five years, or ten years, and show you points where a stock was undeniably underpriced to what its intrinsic value should be, um, and. I, I sort of, what I tell CEOs when we have these conversations is, you know, I don't think your share repurchase plan should ever be outsized to what you would consider a balanced ratio to be until those moments in time. Because when you find yourself at those moments in time, that's when you make a share buyback that's, you know, one, two, three standard deviations outside of what I would call that normalized band. Because in those moments where you know your company, you know your product, you know your market, you know how you create value year in and year out. And you can look yourself in the mirror and say, the stock market is wrong. And you take that capital and, and invest back in yourself, which is what it is. You can create immense amounts of value to shareholders, right? And that doesn't have to be every year, but I think the best management teams have a very good understanding of when those moments come about um, and they take advantage of them because look, markets are fickle. Uh, they will, you know, they will assign values for weird reasons. And there are a whole host of, 
uh, influences in that regard, right? You know, it's, oh, we're to take, for example, right now, the stock market, you know, we're, we're super pro-cyclical and reflationary and growth focused. And, you know, I have a, companies that we cover that I would tell you, yeah, they're completely valued below intrinsic value. And this is the time their management should have outside share repurchase. But, you know, I don't think zero is the right answer. Uh, I don't think all the money is the right answer, um, but it depends on a company's, you know, individual opportunity set and they have to know what that is. And they can't look past one stakeholder group or opportunity because they're addicted to, you know, one form of capital deployment, whether it's dividends or share repurchases or R&D. Mm-hmm. Um, a great leadership team has to be able to understand where in that set of choices, the best opportunity lies at any given point in time. That's great. I think that's great. So uh, one of our frequent guests, Frank Kalberg, wants to know um, how you how you go about learning you know, about a company culture, the values that they hold? What are, what are some things you look for? It's a great question. Um, <clears throat> there are, <clears throat> there are things I love to, I mean, I, uh, I try to spend as much time as I can with it, with its people and, you know, not just the CEO. It's funny. I, I would tell you as an analyst, something that I think I've always done differently, you know, companies will host a, you know, an, an investor get together, right? You know, let's call it 50 to 100 people in a room and they'll have their CEO and their CFO. And then they'll have, you know, various division heads and uh, sector CFOs and the general counsel and the head of HR. And the, over the years, I've always found these meetings sort of funny, right? Because when you walk into one, there will be 15 analysts standing in a circle around the CEO, and then there'll be 12 analysts standing in a circle around the CFO, and there'll be 10 analysts standing in a circle around uh, the sexiest sector within the, you know, the conglomerate, you know, whoever that sector president is. I have never stood in those circles. I don't want to be in those circles. I always seek out the person who has nobody standing there talking to me. It's like the chief scientist, the head of HR, the general counsel, um, you know, the newly indoctrinated sector CFO over here. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've often loved having those discussions because the, the, the CEO and the CFO and, you know, some of these other folks, you know, they say many of the same things that you would say on a public company conference call. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like I don't learn as much from that. So I, I try to meet the next layer down. I try to tour as many factories as I possibly can. Um, I try to talk to a company's customers candidly, you know, sort of off the record about what it is they get, you know, out of, you know, their relationship with that particular company. Um, and funny enough, you know, you, you, as an analyst, as you grow, you know, as a young analyst, I find you, you, you befriend the, the, the more junior executives in an organization, right? Because the old analysts are the ones that know the CEO when you're just a you know, a 30 something and a kid following these stocks. But what happens is over time, uh, the people you know become the ones that run the company. And uh, I've gotten to a point now where the people I know are the ones that run the company. And it's, it's been fun to watch their career progression um, and to watch their influence on the organization. And so it's, it, I guess the answer to the question is it's very holistic. Um, I give a lot of speeches uh, to companies about, you know, what Wall Street thinks about their value creation formula or just them in general. Um, and I've, I've, I've almost made a process out of that as well. You know, I, I, I say, if, if I'm going to come speak, you, you should invite me to the dinner the night before because I want to go talk to 50 people. I, you know, I, I want to know more about what makes a company tick. 
Um, and it, the more you learn about that and then you pair it with the financials and financial analysis, there's an intersection, right? And, and people, <laughs> we're, look, we're all just trying to feed our families, right? I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable system here, but we do different things where we add value and, and we, we attempt to, to make money and live our lives. And when you begin to see what it is that companies are seeking to accomplish, you open a proxy statement and ask yourself, why is the incentive compensation formula like this? And when I sit down with, you know, these 20 people that work at the, you know, at the company and ask them what they're working on, does it align with the results that are meant to, driven, to drive that incentive compensation package? Um, in the best companies, the alignment is very clear throughout the organization. In the worst ones, it's completely disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you can find that, you know, one of the, one of the companies we talk about in the book, but a company I covered today even is Otis Elevator, um, which you think, oh, sleepy elevator company, like how exciting can that be? I mean, it's a fantastic business, but it's one that is absolutely transforming itself along with the entire industry today, because as the internet of things is enabling, uh, you know, connections that never existed before, we're adding new capability, right? So there's, you know, there's Otis has 2.1 million elevators installed in the world. And, and you know, as of last year, they had connected 100,000 of them to the internet. You know, well, why does that matter? Well, you know, I'm out there competing against low cost independent providers, but if I could tell you Oh, well, on your phone, I can show you exactly how your elevator is working, when it's not working. I can proactively send service technicians to, you know, the elevator business is all about that service tail. And so as we digitize everything, um, you know, we've got a, you know, a real opportunity to, to change and transform companies like that. Otis was spun out of United Technologies just a year ago. Um, and when you look at United Technologies incentive structure, for example, for years and years and years under George David and then under Louis Chenevere for the better part of 20 years, the company was comp- based, had a compensation structure basically based on EPS growth, right? And Otis in the construct of that com- uh, conglomerate was basically viewed as this slow growing thing that really didn't have innovation opportunities, but it generated a lot of cash. And the cash could be reinvested in all the fast growing things like aerospace or you know, whatever. And you know, when a company gets inside that, right, and you're just viewed as the, 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 the ATM, you're not allowed to unlock your full potential. And so this digitization story, this transformational you know, shift for a business like that is something that's really only become present to the market in the last year because now it's a company that can stand on its own and it can shape its own incentive structure. And so it's, it's just one example of how these things can get misaligned. That's a great example. And by the way, the elevator business is near and dear to my heart because one of my clients is Kone, oh. uh, which is from Finland, obviously. And, uh, and Kone, um, I think really was ahead of Otis. And I think maybe this is why moving to you know a strategy of well it started out as as maximizing the the elevator for the lifetime value of the owner of the building rather than focusing on the developers and the real estate people in the new elevator business they really flipped the dial a bit and focused on building owners 
And that has now become a strategy of facilitating the movement of people and goods through buildings. And they were really ahead of that. They were ahead yep. on, I think they were ahead on digital as well. They were one of the first to sort yep. of install sensors, which said, you know, if an elevator shows these five things, send a technician, something bad yeah. is about to happen. You know, they were one of the first to do that. Yeah, so the, door, was- the door is misaligned. You know, one out of every 100 runs, it, it exhibits this behavior. Exactly. And you know, you know, massive database, you know, what's going to come next. I mean, these are, these are fascinating things. And, and it's, it's very interesting. Again, so you become as an investment analyst, I look at you know this business and say, okay, so it's an elevator. I sell it for $75,000. I make $5,000 on the initial sale. I probably lose $5,000 servicing it during its warranty period. And then every four years, it'll have a service contract. And that elevator might live 40 years, right? So the math, I can just ask myself, okay, well, um, what's the probability that I'll convert that unit into a service contract? And four years from now, what's the opportunity or, you know, what's the probability that I'll retain it? You know, and that's a mathematical series that stretches out for the 40 years. But each year that I have it on service, I might make 3,500 bucks, 4,000 bucks, something like that. So when you think about it in the context of what I made on the initial sale, the probabilities I put in that model for that stream of cash flows on all those service contracts are more important to the to the return on investment of that unit than anything else you can come up with. And so if you tell me installing a sensor can give me a, you know, a point, one point of conversion, I can tell you the return on investment can grow by 10%, 12%. And so when you think about things like digital and, and sensors and connected and I mean, layer on, you know, AI, it, it could completely transform a business like that. And that's just one example. I mean, you can find that throughout the industrial space, mm-hmm. oh, precision absolutely. farming, um, you know, power by the hour contracting in aerospace. I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating sort of major shift in the basis. I don't want to run out of time before we get a chance to talk a little bit about Boeing because you wrote the, the chapter about Boeing in the book. Boeing's a company I've watched and admired for years. And yet the one narrative is that they let the pressure to outperform in stock market terms undermine the, I'll call it the integrity of the sort of decisions they were making about where they were going to invest, how they were going to line up against Airbus, you know, what they were going to reward. And of course, we've seen Boeing have a, 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 you know, there was the max crisis. And then you were just recently interviewed on CNBC saying that, you know, we're facing an unprecedented decline in air travel potentially. Um, so maybe maybe yeah. your take on the Boeing story because I think it's such an iconic company and so interesting. <laughs> it's, it's it's really fascinating. You got uh, a plane behind you, right? <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. That's you know it's, that one's uh you know one of one of many. I would say the Boeing. There's this. I, I would say the most popular narrative, and you were kind of getting around it, is this you know profits versus safety. Again, I would tell you, I think that characterization of the whole storyline is is overly binary um, and misses probably a lot of context, but has elements of, of real troubling kind of revelation in it. Um, to, to kind of illustrate what the business is, I, w- I would go back in time, right? Boeing enjoyed a very dominant market position until, you know, basically the turn of the century. Um, you know, until the, you know, the 90s, Airbus was really an upstart competitor that really didn't gain a lot of steam until the 90s. Boeing merged with McDonnell Douglas and Boeing had been, uh, I think to this day, people look back at it and say, you know, Boeing, it was all about the planes. It's all about engineering. You know, we're pushing the limits of technology and that's true and it's great. Um, 
But when Boeing merged with McDonnell Douglas, there was an amazing amount of tension. This is in 1997, 98, uh, around the need to, to make money. Does the, you know, this business needs to make money. And, and Harry Stone Cipher of GE uh, fame, to go back to the, you know, the, the Welsh years, uh, was running uh, that business. Um, you know, had this view that the business needed to make money. There's this, you know, famous story of him walking the, the factory floor and, and looking, you know, pointing at an Air India 747 and saying, you know, how much money do we make on that thing? And the CFO said, we can't really answer it that way. And I go like, what do you mean? We don't, we don't know how much money we make on a, you know, a hundred plus million dollar product. Um, and for him, that was unacceptable. Um, I think for, you know, the Boeing culture, that was shocking. Um, because it really was about um, the products and it was about the technology. But the sad reality of Boeing at that point in time was Airbus was coming. Uh, Airbus had a suite of products that, you know, were selling well. Uh, and the reality was that they needed to make more money to be a more competitive company in what was quickly becoming a global duopoly. Um, and you know, they, they, that was a necessary step. However, you know, the, the, you know, we went through 9-11 and there was, you know, clearly a, a downturn associated with that and then losses. And, you know, the, the idea was, well, we need a new plane. We need, we need to re-inject technology in here. And frankly, Airbus felt the same way. Uh, their, their motivations were a little bit different in the 2000s, uh, but they both developed brand new planes that lost more money than any plane we'd seen in the, in, you know, the previous 40 years of the industry. The 787, which lost the better part of $50 billion before it turned a profit, which is a staggering number when you consider that Boeing at the time of the 787's launch was probably a $27 billion market cap company. So, you know, you get these, it's a popular cliche in the airplane business, you know, the bet the company bet, they bet the company and, and lost 2x. Um, and Airbus didn't lose as much on the A380, uh, you know, the double decker, you know, big competitor, but they lost a lot as well. And when both companies exited the 2000s, you know, coming out of the global financial crisis, they were in very, very tough shape, you know, ba bad shape. Um, and what they both did, and I would say there's this period between sort of 2010 and 2015, um, you know, people make the case that airplane companies don't, you know, they never learn their lesson. I, I, I would actually say the opposite. They, they overlearn their lesson. They focused on risk. And, you know, it's funny when you look at the, the airplane business, and I'll, I'll try to get through this expediently, the airplane business is all about you invest billions of dollars to lose billions of dollars on those early deliveries in hopes that you might make billions of dollars. And so it's a very tough business where if you've only got two or three products, depending on where they are in that life cycle, that'll determine your returns. And in many cases, the companies take on too much risk pushing the product development curve to try to go get to that point where they make billions of dollars and they make a lot of mistakes because designing airplanes is hard. And so in that period from 2010 to 2015, I would argue both companies learned a lot about risk and they said, let's just dial risk back. We're gonna take, we're not gonna push the technological envelope. We'll re-engine airplanes. We will not do fixed price bidding, things of that nature. And as a result, we had, you know, there are good returning programs in the company and bad returning programs in the company. And if you just take away the bad, the good suddenly can shine through for what it was. And that was a big part of the success story. I think where they got lost 
was if a little bit is good, then more must be better, right? So we can, you know, the margins can go here, but what if we look at the supply chain? You know, that's where all our costs are. Let's push the supply chain for more, you know, for better pricing and we'll hold, you know, future content hostage as a, you know, way to do that. And some of these things I would say started as good business decisions because you say, well, this is a very profitable product that you're providing to me and I'm giving you access to this platform and it'll go on for another 10 years and you'll make a fortune. You should give me a price break. You know, that's in many cases, just good business, but they began to push harder and harder and harder in illogical ways. And in many cases, back to the GE example, fooled themselves of what was right and what was uh, a good decision. Um, and then you, we all know the story, you know, where does that go? You know, how much do you push on the max for, you know, development and whatnot? And, you know, things got missed and unfortunately people lost their lives. Um, you know, I think what Boeing, you know, would like to do now is get back to appreciation of that risk and minimizing it because the success of 2010 to call it 2015, 16 was really undone by allowing risk of a different type to creep back into the portfolio. And so when we look at the 2020s, the real question will be, can they get that in hand? Can they rebuild and mend some of the relationships with key stakeholder groups who they probably took a little bit too much out of? Um, so, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough story. Um, it doesn't fit in the profits versus safety box as much as I think everybody would like it to. Um, it's far more complex and nuanced than that. But, you know, there were elements of arrogance and, and failure in that that are, you know, of epic proportions. And then to just run into a 15 down, standard deviation downturn in air traffic, you know, it's like the ultimate double whammy. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. anyway. And they're looking for what, 60 billion in the... I think they have enough, there, there was, you know, plenty of this, the government support, they ended up going to the capital markets and getting, you know, getting the capital on their own. Um, you know, the Fed was, you know, I think very uh, instrumental in making credit super available. So Boeing took advantage of that. They're going to have to pay a lot of that money back. You know, it's a, it's a big hole to dig out of and it's going to take some time. Um, but I think they'll, I, I think they'll get there in due course. The question is, you know, what will the culture be three years from now? And you hope it's something more like uh, where where it was in the past before you know some of these oversights were made. Mm -hmm. That's that's really interesting. I think, and I see that as well. You know, you 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 start down a path, and then almost without realizing it, that early set of choices commits you in your mind to these future things. And I think one of the things the really outstanding leaders do is they say, "Hey, you know, the world has changed, and we need to be thinking really differently." Um, what are the early warnings like that you look for when, when a company, you know, they kind of make the little hairs on the back of your neck stand up and go, oh, this isn't good. This doesn't look good. So you talked about incentive comp as one. As an analyst, mm -hmm. um, an inability to, to talk, be open, honest, answer tough questions. Um, you know, having, you know, if we have a conference call and you manage, you know, who, who's allowed to ask a question or, you know, you, I look, I think if you're the CEO of a giant company, you should be capable of standing up in front of the podium and answering, answering any question, whether it's relevant to your company or not. Uh, when I find that companies are trying to control the information flow, that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Mm -hmm. Um, 
when I identify things that appear like communication isn't allowed to go two ways or, you know, bad news doesn't travel up. I worry uh, like crazy about that. Um, misaligned incentives, the one I mentioned before, um, static incentives. This idea that you can have an incentive comp plan that has the same metric for 10 years, is there's no way that's right. There's no way that a company's, uh, you know, opportunity set and, you know, key success factors is unchanged over 10 years. I mean, it's one of the things you, you highlight in your book, right? And so like, you know, transient advantage concept, right? <laughs> Where you go like, you know, the source of my competitive advantage today is not likely to be the source of my competitive advantage five years from now or 10 years from now. Therefore, I shouldn't pay my executives and my team leaders on a static system that doesn't appreciate that that, that landscape is shifting. Mm -hmm. um, so I look for those things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I look for, you know, leadership that fits the, 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 the challenges or opportunities that a company faces and, and leadership that doesn't. I mean, let's face it, not all leaders are created equally. Some are operationally um, capable, some are strategically capable, you know, some are good at building teams, others are, you know, good at leading from, you know, their own little island. Um, every company needs something different. So I try to figure out what that is and whether or not the leader is the right person for that company at that time, given their opportunity set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ben Horowitz talks about wartime leaders and peacetime leaders. And yep. uh, that's ironically, that's reflected by my buddy, Tom Kolditz, who wrote a wonderful book called In Extremist Leadership about yeah. like, leading. He calls these um, crisis professionals. You know, <laughs> he says most of what we know about leading in a crisis comes because somebody got into trouble and then either they got out of it or didn't. But he said he was interested in learning from people who have chosen to be in crisis situations and how do they approach them and kind of just a very different set of practices. But yeah, the same thing. Exactly. There's the sort of people, their blood pressure goes down when, uh, when the tension goes up and, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm not one of those people, but I surely envy the people who are. Well, it, it's interesting. You can, you can almost recognize them. And, and, mm -hmm. and like David Cody to me is a wonderful example. Like if you, if you had a, held up a checklist of, you know, what makes a great CEO, well, you know, someone who's telegenic and someone who's quick with a word and someone, you know, the whole long list, right. Of the, of the sort of movie yep. star CEO, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but, um, but David's not like that. And he's just probing and curious and what, why do you think that, you know, I mean, like yeah. not, not in a way that says you shouldn't be thinking that in a way that's like, no, I'm genuinely want to know why you think that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one of the questions that's come up in the chat and that I did want to ask you is, um, so we're kind of in the middle of, I'll call it four major inflection points right now. Right. So obviously the pandemic and the flow through of, of changes in behavior, some of which I think are going to stick, some of which aren't, you know, and, and right now it's impossible to tell which. We've got, of course, the underlying climate crisis, which affects a lot of the sectors that, that you work in. We've got the quest for justice crisis, and we've got the inequality crisis. And it's sort of, to me, those are all coming together in really strange and interesting ways. And, and I wonder if you take those kinds of things into your, do you model it? Do you, do you look at ranges or how do you, as you think about the next two, three years, as we're sort of making our way through whatever this is, how do you just analytically deal with that? It's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because it's much, it, for an analyst, it's much more of a qualitative yeah. debate than right. we want. But I would tell you, we find ourselves at a very interesting point in time in that <clears throat> the pandemic caused many companies to rethink who they are 
and how they operate. I mean, that's the old, you know, never waste a good crisis kind of comment, right? Which is, um, you know, sort of morbid in a in an odd way. But I would say, you know, there's there's this unique awakening moment that happens because of the pandemic um, that I think is allowing companies to understand one, there are things that they can do, and two, that they absolutely have to participate and act, right? And it's it's you know, 18 months ago, the only debate we probably would have had would have would have been about other stakeholder groups and short-termism and and employees and whatnot. This is we've taken that and blown it wide open into you know many different vectors where I think companies now have an unbelievable amount of understanding or should have an unbelievable amount of understanding on the influence they can have in all of in all of these you know avenues, if you will. Um, and so I'm actually somewhat optimistic that it will drive um, it will drive more accelerated behavior and more appreciation for uh, where companies can go and what they can be to their people, to their um, you know to the geographies that they serve, to the customers that they serve. Um, I'm actually pretty bullish on that, and that's coming. You know, look, I I cover defense stocks, right? You know, so it's like you know. You know, do ESG investors invest in defense stocks? You know, they, well, they make products that kill people. So, well, so probably not. But in all actuality, they make products that are meant to minimize violence and protect civilizations and do so in many ways with deterrence. But nonetheless, this these these topics are moving even into that space. Um, and so I, I think we've, we've actually gotten a real shot in the arm, not to use a vaccine pun, but... Um, We've got a real shot in the arm of, you know, pushing uh, companies to advance, you know, progress. Uh, and I see it over and over again. I mean, it's it's through all the companies I, I, I see and touch. Um, there's been an amazing amount of development, I would say, even in the last year. You know, companies who have realized the starting point is a discussion with a union leader, a head of HR, a general counsel, you know, a diversity inclusion chief. Um, you know, outside, you know, third party, let's sit around a table and ask ourselves what we can be and who we can be and what good looks like. Um, there are far many more of those conversations happening today than there were a year ago, two years ago. And I think that's incredibly encouraging. That's interesting. Well, one of the big debates, of course, is how much, uh, how much of what, a, of, of the wealth a company generates should go to you know, investors, executives, senior type people versus be more broadly shared with workers. And there, there are two camps, right? There's the sort of Friedman argument, which is, you know, within the bounds of the law, you know, your, your main first responsibility is to the owners of the company. And then there's the other view, which is that, you know, actually, no, workers contribute of themselves. They don't buy stock, they don't contribute capital, but they contribute to the capabilities and the growth of the firm. And I'm curious, do you, do you, I mean, I, we're up from where I sit, I sit, I see that debate changing, you know, the, in the circles I move in, you know, you can't say Tom Friedman without people kind of rolling their eyes and saying, yeah. you know, uh, sorry, sorry, um, the Friedman doctrine, um, and you know, people kind of rolling their eyes and saying, oh, yeah, that's a discredited idea. And yet, and yet, you know, you need some way of anchoring a company. And the reason the Friedman doctrine became so popular was there were an awful lot of companies that 
you know, and Boeing might be an example that we're kind of being run for the benefit of, you know, the, the communities, the shareholders, the, 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 sorry, the communities, the stakeholders, the people, and kind of shareholders feeling a bit left out. Um, and so I wonder if you're, do you, from where you sit, do you see a rebalancing of this in some way? There's definitely pressure. Um, the, the pendulum is swinging in that direction. The question is, what is, you know, what are your logical solutions to that? Um, the easiest way in my, in my mind to, to, to square the circle, if you will, is to put the equity ownership in the hands of the, the employees, right? Because the problem with, you know, it's okay, well, we can raise the, you know, the reality of these companies is, you know, they have a cost structure that has to be globally competitive. <clears throat> and so you can't suddenly make it uncompetitive and then expect to have, you know, the same, you know, rewards reaped by all of the stakeholders, right? If I make the cost structure of a company less competitive, then, you know, all of the stakeholders, the employees, the communities, the, the stockholders, the executives, the, you know, the governments that are influenced, but everyone is worse off. And so I think the easiest way to connect this is to say, well, we need to increasingly find ways to have employees be more aligned with the equity return. Right. And I think you can see, you know, uh, this has come up at, at KKR recently. Right. You know, it's the typical LBO model where the employees, you know, the, the, the general view is the employees get stepped on. So the private equity firm can, you know, make all the money. Why can't you have the employees participate in the upside? Mm -hmm. um, I think increasingly that's where we need to move and compensation structures. Again, this comes right back to incentives. Mm -hmm. Compensation structures should attempt to drive the outcome that you want. If you want your employees to be better off, if you want your communities to be better off, um, you know, then you, you've got to incentivize for that outcome because that's what you'll get, right? And so, you know, should companies increasingly be looking to, you know, donate to the communities that they serve for the well-being of the, you know, the people who interact with their employees and and, and those geographies? A absolutely, you know, I'd love to see more of that. I think the pendulum is certainly swinging in that direction, um, but. You know, equity ownership is a very, very powerful thing that too few citizens in our economy, you know, ever truly get to experience what it can mean for their wealth and their understanding of, you know, purpose and their happiness. And um, I, I, I would I would love it if we saw more of that over the course of the next decade. And I'm hopeful that we will. That's that's really inspiring. And that's the first time I've heard it laid out so clearly from someone who you would think would be kind of on the other side of that, right? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, look, it's, it's a wall street mantra, right? Let's all get rich. You know, like it doesn't have to just be one person, but um, it's funny. One of the topics we, we talk about in the book, and I think it's, it's pretty powerful. Some of the, the, some of the best organizations have an unbelievable understanding from the absolute top all the way down to the factory floor of what we're supposed to accomplish today. I walked into the office today and this is what I have to do. This is what my contribution to the formula is. And it's that line of sight all the way through the organization is powerful. When you pair that with equity interest in the organization's success, it's a wonderful recipe for, you know, happiness and, and understanding. I mean, when you can, when you know how what you do every day influences the outcome, the successful outcome, and then you see it in your pocket later, that's a very powerful feedback loop. 
And that really speaks to some extent to this hunger for purpose that we keep hearing employees of the future are going to be insisting on, right? Which is yeah. they want to have a, a purposeful life, life at work. Well, oh my, I'm looking at the time. Look, um, this, I'm just so delighted. As I mentioned, you're the first uh, analyst I've had on, 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 on this. And I'm, I'm just so curious to learn more about your world. So <laughs> I'll have to tell you a quick analyst story. When I first started at Columbia, of course, we send a lot of our product off to Wall Street. So I went and talked to somebody at uh, CS Boston, CS Credit Suisse. Um, and I said, you know, tell me about your culture. Tell me about what you guys care about. And he said, well, what we care about is money. And so imagine a giant like bathtub on the roof of this building. And what your, your students' jobs is, is to convince everybody else that without them, there'd be less in the bathtub at the end of the year for us to share. <laughs> I thought that was such an interesting way of framing it, right? That's one perspective. <laughs> that is definitely one way to do it. <laughs> I'm not sure it's the way I would do it, but it's one way to do it. It doesn't sound like it. So that's been, it's been really in interesting. Um, and I think part of your role as an independent group sort of allows you to have those points of view more freely expressed. So how do people learn more? How do they become, find out more about Carter's world? Well, look, so you can, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you can learn a lot about what, you know, what we think and what we do uh, by purchasing the book, Lessons from the Titans. It's available on Amazon. Um, if you're an institutional investor out there uh, looking for uh, looking for insights on stocks, you can you know you can access our website at um, www.neliusresearch.com, uh, and you can find me on Twitter, uh, where occasionally I tweet about things that aren't airplanes, but mostly I do tweet about airplanes because. I like airplanes. So, um, but yeah, we, uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time and, um, you know, maybe we can do it again at some point. Oh, this has been fascinating. I'd love to stay involved. And then I may reach out to you for a couple of other projects I'm working on. That could be fun.